Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. You know, Lisa, the market's just you know, just kind of looking at it. They were holding on to some uh, gains here just a few minutes ago. Then they just rolled over. we got the S&P down 28 and the Dow off uh, 200. They were, again, for that first hour of the market, kind of holding those uh, small gains, but uh, not enough. Yeah, we're well, looking right now at the NASDAQ down eight tenths of a percent, uh, really tanking around, uh, you know, 10.15, 10.10 a.m. Yep. We'll try to figure out what the catalyst was there, which headline it was yes. for everyone to, to push the sell button. I tell you, it's a perfect setup for our next guest, uh, Nariana Coach. Lakota, former Minneapolis Fed president and Bloomberg opinion columnist. He's also the professor of economics at the University of Rochester, uh, based in Rochester. Uh, now, Rihanna, you wrote a really interesting column for uh, Bloomberg uh, just yesterday, kind of talking about how the Fed should be aggressive, not wait, maybe think about some preemptive rate cuts to kind of get ahead of this coronavirus. I guess the question is, would that even help? Would that matter given how low rates are right now? Oh, yeah. And thanks for uh, having me on. I, actually, I think given how low rates are right now, uh, really um, makes the case even stronger for a preemptive move. Um, you know, the, the basic thinking about um, that's emerged in the last uh, 10 to 15 years about what central banks should do when they're so close to the zero lower bound, that is when they're so close to being out of tools, is to try to keep the economy as healthy as possible uh, when faced with a, the risk of a downturn or uh, adverse shock. And I think the coronavirus is exactly an example of that. My benchmark outlook is one where um, the, the, the U.S. economy remains resilient, but there's downside risk, and the Fed should, uh, I think, be very sensitive to that downside risk, given, given how low rates are already, meaning given how little ammunition they have. Um, they, they really should be moving right now to try to keep the economy as healthy as possible. Mariana, I just want to bring you this, uh, because we did note a real rollover in equity markets. And I asked Vince Signorella, our macro strategist here at Bloomberg, and he was saying uh, there were a number of headlines about the virus, the coronavirus hitting mainland Spain and, and Barcelona, as well as in Switzerland. So this idea that it's becoming more widespread throughout the Euro continent. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, the fact that this makes the case even more for the federal reserve to cut rates, what will that actually do, given the fact that it won't necessarily make people more incentivized to go out and spend money? I mean, if they're just holing up and trying not to get sick. Uh, no, I think that what you you do by um, by cutting rates is uh, in the in the in the in the U.S. especially, I think what you see when we've seen the last couple of days is flights to safe havens. What that ends up doing is uh, the U.S. dollar is one of those safe havens. It pushes up the value of the dollar. And even if the U.S. itself uh, ends up not being affected uh, greatly by the coronavirus, that appreciation of the dollar pull, pulls the Fed further away from its goals of um, uh, 2% inflation. Uh, on the employment front, uh, if, we can, if we, by cutting rates, the Fed can get more Americans to spend, that offsets the fall in demand for U.S. goods and services that we will be seeing from overseas. So I think uh, that this is all about trying to keep the U.S. economy as healthy as possible, given this, uh, given this negative shock. Would fiscal stimulus be a better option um, than more rate cuts, do you think? Well, uh, you know, I'm completely supportive of what I heard from uh, Fed speakers last week who were uh, putting out the case for, look, 
the Fed doesn't have uh, that many tools in the, in the toolkit. So uh, fiscal policy should be ready to roll if we were to get into um, uh, a recessionary state or a negative, a negative demand shock of some kind. Um, I don't think Congress is, <laughs> is in that situation right now, but I certainly agree with uh, my, uh, my former Fed colleagues who were laying out this case that, look, the Fed only has a limited, uh, limited toolkit. It'd be great if fiscal policy um, was clearly going to step in uh, to make up for that, uh, that slack. Nariana, I would say that the bond market currently agrees with you that the Federal Reserve uh, will or should be cutting rates potentially even three times by early next year, although perhaps disagrees in that there is a very de minimis chance that they're going to cut rates on the March 18th meeting. The rate cuts really are priced in to begin in June. I'm just wondering what you said about incentivizing consumers to spend. Is that sort of the last tool? Because we're not necessarily seeing corporations borrow that much more despite record low borrowing costs. Is it really aimed at the consumer levering up to go buy cars or uh, microwaves or whatever else? Yeah, I mean, uh, we incentivize consumers to buy um, through monetary policy, partly through by uh, making borrowing cheap, but also by making savings unattractive. So through both of those instruments, you're trying to incentivize spending. I've been disappointed by uh, investment on the uh, on the corporate side. I'm, I'm not alone in that. Uh, that's really um, you need some notion of uh, I think better expectations about the long run than uh, than the corporations appear to have, uh, either in the U.S. or in Europe or in uh, in China and Japan. I think that um, it's long-run diminished expectations that are are really uh, keeping uh, the lid on on corporate investment. With all due respect, though, I have to wonder if you say that making savings less advantageous, does that just push people into riskier assets, riskier debt that's already trading at highly elevated prices uh, into equities that already are at historically high levels? There's going to be some of that on the. Uh, there's some incentive to do that. Uh, although, as you just pointed out, I mean, uh, equities are very expensive. Um, um, so you, 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 that 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 the fact that equities are, are so expensive should say to people, look, um, I don't want to buy stocks. I might as well spend my money instead. So I think on on the margin, um, it, all of this is on the margin. You are going to be able to stimulate spending, and that will generate higher employment and um, keep the Fed closer to its, its in, in inflation target. So it's interesting, Narayana, the Fed Open Market Committee holds its next meeting March 17th or 18th. Do you think they will wait till then, or do you think they will act preemptively? Well, um, my column was a should column. It wasn't a, a description of what the <laughs> Fed will actually do. Um, so I, 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 I thought that the Fed should move preemptively. I don't anticipate that they will. Um, I, sh- I uh, share the skepticism that they will move in, in March. I, I think the Fed, yet again, has boxed itself into a corner by saying, look, things are great. We're, not gonna, we're in a great position. And it means that by locking themselves in, by talking so much about that, it means a loss of face, a loss of, quote, unquote, credibility of some kind 
for them to start to move, to move rates in either direction. We're speaking with Narayana Kuchalakota, former Minneapolis Fed president, professor of economics at the University of Rochester, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, about his column that called for a preemptive rate cut by the Federal Reserve. Uh, We should just mention that right now we are seeing a sell-off in equities, although off earlier lows after starting the day positive, uh, with the losses uh, led by the S&P down a little bit more than six-tenths of a percent. Mariana, I'm curious about the actual fundamental U.S. economy and the state of it. We got some PMI data on Friday that had to do with services in particular that highlighted a degree of weakness that was really unexpected by economists and market players alike. I'm wondering what you make of that. Is there perhaps less momentum behind the U.S. consumer than some people expect? I, I think there, you, you know, as usual when you read the tea leaves, I think there's uh, some some strong positives. The labor market um, remains a, a real source of, of uh, good news. Um, on the other hand, um, the labor market tends to be a little bit backward looking. Maybe there's things you can see that that are more forward looking that that um, give you cause would give one's cause for concern. My own benchmark outlook is remains that. Um, you know, I'd like to see more growth, but I think we're going to see about 2% growth in this year. Um, the point, though, is when you're making policy, it's really not so much about your benchmark outlook as it is about the risks of that outlook. And that's especially true when you're as close as you are to the zero lower bound. All right. So just last thing, you know, we always thinking about this Fed as being data dependent. I wonder what data you think they might be looking at now as it relates to the coronavirus that might be a little different than what they've done in the past. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, a tough question. I, you know, I think that one of the things they'll be looking at, I, I, I suspect, is what's going on in markets. I think that you see um, fear in markets. You see the imprint of fear in markets, and um, that fear is will be a drag on the economy. And so I think that the Fed will be looking at that. In terms of actual hard numbers on, on, uh, on the economic front, I really hope they don't wait to see those. And I, I think last year they moved in a way – um, they, their, their interest rate cuts were less motivated by what was going on in the economy as opposed to a perception of risk to the economy. That's a, exactly what I'm urging in, in, the, in the context of the coronavirus as well. And I, I hope they do that. Um, as I said, they've, again, I feel like they've used language to box themselves into a, a corner where it's hard. They, they're going to find it hard. They're going to yeah. feel that it's hard for them to move uh, interest rates either up or down. Narayana Kuchalakota, former Minneapolis Fed president, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Narayana is a professor of economics at the University of Rochester and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Paul, we really noticed a marked turnaround from what had been a positive start to the day. Yeah, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, it looks like uh, we're seeing some uh, reporting of some cases, you know, now not just Italy, but perhaps Spain as well. Um, and so I think that just raises the concerns that a lot of investors have about how much of a potential is this to be a global pandemic, which could uh, impact uh, global GDP? And I think that's kind of the risk we're seeing uh, in the bond market, um, you know, yields grinding lower and then the equity markets rolling over here. Yeah, this is just to be very clear. The WHO has not, the World Health Organization has not deemed this yet a pandemic. It is required that an international agency like yes. that give it that designation. However, we are seeing it spread beyond the borders of China and Japan and Korea uh, and Italy now to Switzerland. 
Switzerland, which is confirmed, and also reports in Spain as well. The question is, do you buy this dip? And Jim Paulson, chief investment strategist at Luthold Group, has been watching closely and joins us now on the phone. Jim, do you buy here? <laughs> well, I uh, I think if you've been underweighted dramatically, it, you might want to buy a little bit. But otherwise, I think I'd uh, stand pat here and let the, let the fear sort of burn itself out here uh, for a few more days. You know, I think the coronavirus was the catalyst here, but I think this market would have found some catalyst. I mean, we've just had a tremendous run over the last year, and uh, really, we have not had a you know, 10% correction. We certainly could have here. Who knows? Um, and that would not be at all, you know, uh, surprising. It, it probably at some point would have found some catalyst to do that. Um, you know, and when you have these steep drops, you know, the, the fear really escalates and the stories get, get pretty scary. And, uh, personally, who, who knows? I'm no pandemic expert by any means, so it could be a horrific outcome. I don't really know. But odds, I think, strongly favor that uh, probably this uh, epidemic will, will uh, start to fade a little bit here over the next several months. And, and probably a lot of the spending that has been uh, paused because of this, like in places like China, will catch up. And I still think that's the most likely outcome. It's not shocking to me that we have incidents in other parts of the world. Heck, we had long before last week, we had incidents here in the United States and several other places in the world. So we knew uh, it was spreading. I, I just, I, I'll be surprised, though, to some extent, if it gets nearly as bad elsewhere uh, as it did in China, simply because China, you know, that was the outbreak and no one really knew what it was and no one expected that it was as bad as it was everywhere knows what this is from a standpoint that it's serious and uh, you know before it even gets bad they've taken measures i think that makes a difference um where people have some warning to this as opposed to when it broke in china um so i you know who knows but you, you never know these things but i think underneath this going into this um coronavirus we had an uptick in world economic growth manufacturing was recovering around the world uh, growth in general was recovering. Um, we had our ISM pop back above 50. We had the ISM in China pop back above 50. Right now, economic surprises have been on the positive side in most places around the world, including China, the emerging world, and in the United States. So we had positive momentum going into this, which I think is a very good thing as opposed to negative momentum uh, that we might have had last year if this hit. Yeah. I, I certainly don't know, but, but I would uh, try to avoid, uh, you know, panicking here. I, I think this whole is more a correction than the end of the cycle. Just to give you an update right now, uh, all three major U.S. equity indices down nearly 1% as Spain isolates 1,000 people at an island hotel with the concern that there could be the spread of coronavirus. Switzerland confirming its first case. Meanwhile, you're seeing in the bond market 30-year yields down uh, to new lows of uh, 1.8%, 1.798% now, actually. Uh, and you're seeing rate cut bets increasing with a lot of people speculating the Fed could cut rates three times by the beginning of next year. Yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to go, Lisa. Jim, what do you think the Fed should do, could do, uh, in response to some of the concerns of the coronavirus? 
Well, you know, if, uh, if the market continues to go down, you know, I think the Fed will probably come in and with a rate cut. Um, you know, what does that know. do, though? Well, I think it, it doesn't do much directly fundamentally um, than we've already done, but I think it does help confidence to some degree. One thing it would do is help take the inversion out of the yield curve, which uh, would help Wall Street confidence to some degree, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I also think, Lisa, that in many ways, the, the coronavirus is, you know, the understanding of the story here, that's the narrative. I really think a big part of what's going on is is the bond market and the fact that the 30-year yield broke to new lows last week and the 10-year is doing so now or is very close. I think that's scaring a lot of traders and investors more even than the coronavirus is, is uh, the breakdown in yields. What what does the bond market know that the stock market doesn't? And, and if yields break low, below those levels is our yields in the United States headed negative. Like okay, here's here's the here's the sort of conundrum, right? A lot of people say that the lower yields go on bonds in the United States, the more of a relative valuation case there is for equities. And yet there is this sort of confidence factor where if bond yields head south, price up, yield down, especially at these levels, it indicates a flight to safety and a fear trade that makes people risk averse. So which is it, right? I mean, which signal can you get that you're getting a better relative value valuation in equities, the lower the yields go, or that the bond market is telling you something kind of scary that should keep you away from risk assets? Well, the bond market's been telling us, you know, uh, something scary for really since the end of 2018. And it's also told us something scary in 2016. And it also told us something scary in 2011 and 2013. I mean, the bond market's been telling a scary story throughout this bull market. and. Uh, you know, it hasn't really been right in a lot of those. Now, it could be right at some point. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that we got a scary story coming from the stock market is nothing new in the last decade, um, where it's been perpetually setting new lows and suggesting something sinister is underneath the surface. Um, and we're doing that again. But, you know, we did that at the end of the last manufacturing recession in 2016 as well. And the yields are about where they were, you know, and falling at at this point then as well. So it's hard to know. I mean, the bond market could be right. I, I'm not saying that. But it's not It's not like this is a one-off event that's never happened before. The bond market's been, uh, you know, yelling fire for quite some time. Um, and, I, you know, who knows who, who is right. I just think it connotes fear more than yep. anything else right now. And to me, I wouldn't necessarily run from that. I'm not sure I'd buy into it. I'd let's see a few days see if this can find a bottom, but I, I wouldn't necessarily panic along with everyone else. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your uh, thoughts and commentary. You. Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist for the Luthold Group, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Well, the 2020 presidential election is ramping up and the concern remains from 2016 about the vulnerability of the campaigns and of the election itself to uh, outside influences, most notably, uh, certainly from 2016 from uh, Russia to get a sense of kind of where we are today versus 2016. We welcome Admiral James Stavridis. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, retired U.S. Navy Admiral, and of course, former military commander of NATO. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we know you are busy. Let's start with the presidential election. 
clear evidence that the 2016 election was influenced, was hacked by the Russians. Is that risk still there today? 100 percent. And the entire U.S. intelligence community, all 17 elements of it, have attested to that in front of Congress uh, most recently in a somewhat controversial briefing. Uh, it is clearly a threat. And I'll give you three quick things we got to focus on. One is local manipulation, actually going in and trying to work on balloting procedures. This is perhaps the most undefended portion of this. That won't be manifest until November, of course. Number two is going after the campaigns the way the Russians did in 2016, getting into emails, revealing insider detail to embarrass and deter campaigns. And then number three, what you alluded to, Paul, attempting to influence the campaigns by getting on social media, social networks, creating bots that drive uh, social media campaigns. So there are layer upon layer of ways in which Russia can, and I would suspect will, try and attack these elections. Admiral, given your experience within the military and the uh, the security forces all around, how good is our defense to these types of attacks now compared to 2016? Uh, Lisa, I wish I could say it's uh, it's much, much better. I cannot. I would say that we are somewhat better because our technology and our tools coming out of the National Security Agency, NSA, um, are better. Our uh, big banks, our financials, uh, our telecom have improved. And then thirdly, a plus is that we're more aware of the threat than we were in 2016. But having said all of that, uh, I would say our defenses are a uh, C plus at best. I wouldn't say they are going to get us an A or even a B. And, you know, in elections, that's our democracy. You only want to get an A grade on the conduct of your democracy. So, Admiral, one of the things that's been a theme for the Trump administration is generally not supportive of major parts of our intelligence community and apparatus and, you know, constant attacks on individuals as well as the the entities themselves. Have those, has that position by the administration materially weakened U.S. defenses as it relates to, um, you know, kind of cybersecurity and just overall intelligence uh, support? It has, unfortunately, and it it manifests in two different ways, Paul. One is internally, it's extremely discouraging to the intelligence community when they're denigrated. I alluded a moment ago to uh, a briefing done behind closed doors, classified briefing up on the Hill, uh, conducted by the intelligence community about concerns of the election coming forward. Um, This was attacked by the president. That's not helpful. If the president has views on this, he ought to get behind closed doors with the intelligence community. But um, it starts to buckle the morale inside the intelligence community when they perceive they're being attacked by the commander in chief. And then secondly, our allies, our partners and our friends are watching this. And even worse, Uh, The Russians are watching this and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans. And it gives them more license, more uh, optimism that they can intrude in these elections if they see a split between the executive branch and the intelligence community itself. So uh, not helpful. I wish the president would take his concerns, which may be legitimate at times, 
do it behind closed doors. Don't do it in a way that reveals these kind of divisions. Admiral, I want to just broaden out here. We have certainly the election coming up this November. Uh, The Democratic debate will be held tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. But on a broader level, I'm wondering about the U.S.'s alliances uh, right now, especially as we head toward potentially a more disruptive period of time from a health perspective or an economic perspective. How close is the U.S. to its allies versus, say, two years ago? We have drifted away from uh, some of our allies, most notably our European allies and NATO. That creaking sound you hear from time to time, Lisa, is the transatlantic bridge, which is under a lot of stress and strain as between the United States on one side and NATO on the other. I think, in fairness, we're still very, very close to the Israelis, to the Saudis. We're quite close with the Japanese. Our South Korean alliance has had some stresses. I think the the one I worry about the most is that U.S.-European relationship, because the Europeans matter. Collectively, that's the largest economy in the world, the European Union. Now, with Great Britain leaving it, it's somewhat uh, smaller than it was, but it's still an enormous economic and military capability. So, As we look at challenges around the world, the military ones, certainly the cyber ones, and you're absolutely correct if this coronavirus continues to accelerate, we're going to need all hands on deck globally to deal with it. It's not a good time to be drifting away from our principal pool of allies, partners and friends, and that's Europe. Admiral, just quickly, you know, on the election, simple question, why hasn't the U.S. improved its election security? Just seems like it wouldn't be that difficult. I think the simple answer to the question is uh, because it is bifurcated between different elements of governance. So there are municipal and local elements. There are state elements. There are national elements to it. And then secondly, a continuing flaw in the U.S. government is our interagency still does not work together as well as it should. Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, Department of Defense, National Security Agency. We haven't found a way to collectively bring them together. Last point, we have nobody in the cabinet of the United States who focuses on cybersecurity. We have a Department of Agriculture. I'm sure that's useful. uh, But we need a focus at the cabinet level that can bring all these stovepipes together. That's what's lacking, Paul. Admiral James DeVritis, thank you so much for being with us. Columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, a retired U.S. Navy admiral and former military commander of NATO uh, joining us. He's also uh, the author of a book that was out last year, Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character. Uh, Dean Emeritus, also of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. One stock that is not falling is Home Depot, although off its earlier highs, up now uh, only 1.3% after beating estimates. Uh, And we want to dig into whether this is simply an interest rate story that has given a boost to the housing market, or if there is a message that we can take about the broader consumer, and we'll wrap in Macy's as well. Joining us now to help do that is Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners. Uh, Craig, I want to start with Home Depot. The shares off earlier highs, but still positive, which is remarkable on a day like today. How much do you think the story here is interest rates and how much is this organic demand for housing? Well, um, 
this is the two companies reporting they are iconic names in retail, but they're clearly going in different directions. Um, Home Depot, we think the interest rate uh, element is a part of the picture, but the more important thing is the front changing and improving fundamentals in the housing market is the big driver. Um, and the two key metrics we look at is uh, 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 home pricing and then home turnover, existing home turnover. And both of those are up. Prices are up 6.8% uh, year over year at the latest read. And home turnover is up over 9%, about 9.5%. Those are exceptionally good numbers and represent a sequential uh, improvement over each of the last couple of months. And it's those two factors, the expectations of rising prices and secondly, rising home turnover, those are the key triggers to spending in terms of home improvement. And that's, that's what we think is driving the Home Depot performance. All right, Craig, let's switch gears to Macy's. Um, you know, another tough quarter. Stock's off 3.5% here. The stock's down uh, 12% for this year and 35% over the past 12 months here. So it kind of goes back to that conundrum for these uh, department stores led by uh, the iconic name Macy's. What can they do to survive? Well, um, Macy's challenge, and this is true across uh, department store retailers, there's lagging organic growth in the overall concept of a department store, which really hasn't, the format hasn't really changed that much from when R.H. Macy and Marshall Field created the concept uh, 170 years ago. And the demand for department store shopping is simply down by the range of about, um, of about 1% year over year. And, and so, so we look at we look at what's happening is uh, uh, a decline in market share department shares down to one percent, uh, a decline of one percent, and what we're seeing is that Macy's um, is trying to catch up. They have this new operational Polaris concept where it tries to match cut its costs so it's and reduce capacity so it matches the um, uh, 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 so it matches the supply with demand. And so it's announced cutting of stores. The question is, it's done this a little, it's a dollar late and a dollar short. Can we take any broader uh, takeaway from the data that we've been getting out of Macy's, not maybe Home Depot, because that's a particular story, but Macy's and some of the other retailers about the state of the U.S. consumer? Well, we think the, the underlying state of the U.S. consumer is, is, is essentially healthy. The challenge for department stores is that's a segment of the market that is that it's, it's in decline, and it's been in decline for a full generation. You, you go back to the late 1980s, department stores comprised a full 10% of the retail market. Now it's down to 1.1%. Uh, it's it's exceptional. So it's you don't want to you don't you don't want to uh, uh, estimate the number coming out of uh, just Macy's. So we look at the overall uh, picture, and you know we just issued our our annual forecast for uh, for 2020, and the overall forecast calls for growth of 4.1 percent, which is you know quite good, not stellar, but quite good. But you look at the department store sector, and we're forecasting that it's down about again about one percent decline. So, Craig, given that, you know, backdrop, that outlook, one of the concepts that I'm fascinated with is the concept of the U.S. is still overstored, um, despite the fact that we see Macy's and others uh, closing stores. By what magnitude do you think the industry still has to shrink its physical footprint? Um, we, we're guessing for the department store sector by about uh, another 
20%. This is a large number. It's simply the sector is still way over capacity. There's a lot of stores that you don't need. There's markets in the country. You don't need 10 stores in many major metropolitan areas. You can get by with five, six, seven. And uh, same thing in smaller to mid-sized markets. You don't need a number of stores because the demand simply isn't there. And in Macy's case, just like the other department stores, you have too many retail square feet chasing too few customer feet. And that's the core problem. Got it. Um, and it's exacerbated as, as online grows, which it keeps growing year after year. Yep. Craig Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts here on all things retail. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.